This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome back, everybody, to Where Did You Get This Number? I am Anthony Salvanto, and in this episode, we want to continue our discussion about Woodstock. Back in 69, a seminal event in the minds of many. Last time, we talked about how a concert becomes a legend. And why people still talk about this 50 years later. Well, we had this great conversation, as I hope you recall, with Bud Mishkin, CBS News correspondent who'd gone back and talked to so many of the participants there back 50 years ago, and Lenny Steinhorn, historian at American University. And look, besides the fact that, you know, I'm a pollster who never quite learned to play guitar as well as he would have liked, but still likes to hear the the music from the period, and also explore this idea of how something that big actually comes together. Well, Bud had a lot of great stories, including one of just how exactly some of those acts got to Woodstock and why some didn't play at all. In a pre-social media world, in a pre-internet world, music is often seen as the way of expression, the the lyrics, the way that the bands acted and dressed. But talk a little bit about the way that the festival came together in choosing which acts or which acts chose to go and what it represented to them. Well, they needed big names. They knew that. And, and so uh, there is a story that... Uh, the production coordinator and one of those professionals that the co-organizer, Joel Rosenman, refers to as these are the guys who got us through the weekend. John Morris, who was also one of the voices from the stage, who had kind of a calming effect on, on the crowd when the weather got bad, when, when announcements had to be made. And he tells a story about they wanted The Who. And uh, The Who were done with their tour in the United States and were going back to England. And playing at Woodstock would mean they have to come back again. And so uh, they talk about uh, whining and dining Pete Townsend for a night until like 5 a.m. when he finds, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. And for others, the musicians, it was opportunity. One of the great stories from Woodstock and these interviews I've done is with Jaco Marcelino, who was one of the guys who founded Sha Na Na. So you look at Woodstock and you see these great bands of the time, The Who, Jefferson Airplane, and great performers, Janis Joplin, uh, and acoustic performers like John Sebastian from The Love and Spoonful, who went as a fan. But because so many bands couldn't get there on Friday because of the traffic, they see John Sebastian there, who's just there to listen to the music. He's not scheduled to play. And they say, you know, would you go up and play in front of half a million people? You're here. I don't, he says, I don't have a guitar. He says, trust me, we've got plenty of guitars here. <laughs> so there are a lot of acoustic musicians, a lot of bands. And then this band, Sha Na Na, a 50s band, plays at Woodstock. They're a 50s cover band? Or yeah. And, and, and they had just, they were all Columbia University students. They were doing it for fun earlier in 68. And they play a club in New York and Jimi Hendrix shows up. And Jimi Hendrix loves them. And then other people show up to see this. They were all pretty good to see this 50s act. 
who was doing the music respectfully, but with a little bit of fun as well. And that's why this 50s act, to me, it's like Greece meets the age of Aquarius, plays just before Hendrix. And Hendrix, according to Jaco Marcelino, says, when they say, Jimmy, you know, we want you to get on. And he says, no, 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 these other bands haven't gone on yet. They got, I'm the last one. They got to go. So, and, and Shanana is in the movie. And from that, a whole career was made, television show that they, they, they had. A couple other fun music stories, too. I mean, you think about Santana. Um, Santana wasn't very well known at the time. I think they got paid a total of $750 for their appearance. And their manager said, are, are you ready to sort of all of a sudden jump on the national stage and become big stars and big celebrities? Because this is what Woodstock is going to do for you. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. But when you talk to artists who were there... Did they all realize how big it was going to become in, in the, how legendary it would become? Or was it just, hey, that was a cool festival? I think it was more than, hey, that was a cool festival. They all, in fact, Arlo Guthrie talked about they had a gig the next night. He played Friday. They had a gig in New, in New England on Saturday. And I think they're playing maybe for a thousand people. And he said they were still like in shock at what had transpired Friday night. Uh, John Sebastian, again, was not supposed to play. But when he was asked to go on, this is what they did. Okay, it was in front of half a million people. That had never happened before, probably never since. But it was not in front of 300 in a club or 3,000 in a theater, but you were paid to perform and you knew how to perform. And so uh, you just went out and did that. And, you know, the sound uh, on stage or the, the, uh, the atmosphere because of the weather sometimes was not great. How did they get it to work? How did they get the sound? I know you said it was a natural amphitheater, but what did they do to make it sound so good? Because you listen to the record today and it still sounds pretty good. Well, what they tried to do is to sequence it so that the sound from the stage would coordinate with a bit of the delayed sound from the speakers as you got further and further away from the stage so you could actually hear it in sync with everything else that was going on. So those speakers that were far away from the stage were synced with the, the music that was going on on the stage, and that's how they were able to coordinate all of this. It was quite ingenious, and it worked quite well, and they did use this at other rock festivals. For example, the 1973 Summer Jam in Watkins Glen, which had 600,000 people, arguably one out of every three 17- to 24-year-olds from New York to, to Boston, um, that's how they were able to do it. So, yes, the professionals really were the sort of infrastructure of Woodstock. Don't get the credit they deserve because they really helped to make this work. But, yeah, but there is, I will say this, everybody you talked to said, oh, my gosh, the dead were terrible. And even, you know, I tried to get interviews with Bob Weir and Phil Lesh, oh, yeah. and unfortunately they said no, which, which is okay. But I've seen interviews with Phil Lesh where he explains that it was like Spinal Tap. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know the movie, this yeah, is Spinal yeah, yeah. Tap, yeah. right? where they go to that military installation and they're playing and they're hearing feedback of the military announcements through their amps. He said that's, that was Woodstock for them. That, A, they're getting shocked every time they play the guitar because their stage was wet and it was raining. And he said there was sound coming through the amps that was not coming from their instruments. So, so in the same breath, people say, oh, the dead were terrible. Credence was awesome. And everybody basically says that as well. So, but everybody has their, everybody has their own truth. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dead yeah. were also uh, sort of well lubricated with yeah. their hallucinogenics and they were well known for spiking other people's intake. Hmm. Um, and I think that they did that to Santana and Santana himself was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I going to survive this? How am I going to keep my balance? Because the dead basically said, oh, you won't be on until 2 in the morning. Yeah. They give it to him and he's on at 2 in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, well, they, they managed because they yeah. are memorable. And man, that 
was it Michael Shreve, the drummer, who I think is like 18 or 19 at that mm-hmm. point, and has this amazing drum solo. And geez, when I was 18 or 19, I you know, couldn't even tie my own shoelaces. <laughs> I have heard those stories about the dead as a, as a fan. Uh, as then a fan, Lenny and I, Bud told us a story about Bob Dylan, Woodstock, the musicians who live there, and how Woodstock came to get picked as a place for this concert. And of course, one other footnote is a lot of people thought Dylan was going to be there, right. and he wasn't. Um, and but that became part of the big buzz early on because Dil- Dylan had taken some time off, yeah. he hadn't he? Hadn't he had been in that motorcycle, motorcycle accident? accident? Lived yeah. up in Woodstock. Yeah, that's right. when he wrote, uh, "You ain't going nowhere." So, right. So you know, look, the the four guys were organizers. Three of them are still alive. I got Joel's side of the story. I've read Michael's side of the story, but Dylan is involved in the sense that Joel and John Roberts are two young guys, but they're business guys. In fact, they'd even put a, a, an ad in the Wall Street Journal, Young Men with Unlimited Capital, which I believe was, was a parody. John Roberts came from wealth, mostly because his family was in the pharmaceutical business. But when they're writing checks left and right over the weekend, um, it's his family's money that's on the line. And when they go to the bankers on Monday, Joel tells me that he never flinched. Once they were in, they were in, and he never once had, at least publicly, a moment of, Jesus, I'm taking my family's wealth here. And he he was in, and he was really risking something quite big. But the the two of them had opened a recording studio in New York. Michael and Artie somehow got connected to them, and they wanted to open a, a studio up in Woodstock because there were more and more people who were... Um, musicians up in Woodstock and Dylan was top uh, tops among them and the band. And uh, so they came down to meet with John and Joel and there is a little bit, even though the ages are not that different, there was a bit of a cultural difference, you know, without being stereotypical about it, John and Joel would, I don't know, they'd gone to Yale or Columbia or wherever, but you know, had more of the suits for want of a better term. And uh, as Joel tells it, they were not interested in funding their recording studio upstate. But uh, when they mentioned the possibility that if they had a, if they did do a recording studio and they had like a, a cocktail party, this <laughs> this phrase he used to kind of a kickoff party, and maybe some of the local talent might show up, <laughs> <laughs> like, like Bob Dylan, the band, and Janis Joplin. And Joel says that intrigued me. He said, "Well, if we could do a concert and have Bob Dylan show, that that excites us." And, and he claims that was the germ from which this thing kind of grew. Next, Bud told us a story about how the festival might never have happened in the first place. A gathering that size certainly attracted the attention of political leaders and maybe the National Guard. And uh, some some of the interviews I've done, I've actually talked to some of the organizers and also people who worked, you know, were high up working on the festival and were on the conversation with uh, uh, the governor's people, Rockefeller's people about, you know, the governor had talked about sending in the National Guard. And one of the great moments sometimes in the world of sports they talk about the best trades are the ones not made and one of the best moves not made that weekend is nelson rockefeller not sending in the national guard and that symbol to to help or to do whatever with half a million kids but they also tell the story about uh these military helicopters that came in and all of a sudden the crowd starts booing until the guy on the stage john morris who was the production coordinator says no they're medical people they're coming here to help and and booze turned to cheers. But they actually had to talk down the people from the, the governor's office and say, look, no, we're good. It's a good crowd. It's a peaceful crowd. There's no violence here. You don't need to send in the National Guard. And, and I knew 
the late, great Abby Hoffman. <laughs> and what Abby would say um, is almost exactly that, that they organized a lot of this stuff. Almost, you know, they thought about it. These Lower East Side organizers came up there ready to track non-polluted water, right. help to create the emergency field hospital. And in fact, were these docs that they were bringing up from the medical community for human rights? Because that's what Abby Hoffman would say, is that they arranged to have these doctors come up uh, to be able to do that. So from his perspective, again, take it for what it's worth, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, it, what got left out of the narrative of Woodstock was how all of these organizers from the time made this weekend work, so much so that um, it had an accident and death rate far below the average weekend in places a quarter of its size. Woodstock is often talked about and remembered on a grand scale, changing generations, changing history. But on a personal level, there are great stories about the way that it affected individuals and the way that it affected families, the relationships between kids and their parents. Here's a couple. I'm intrigued also uh, when we talk about the relationship between uh, teenagers and parents at that point. And it was, you know, and also the, ex- the expression of the time, the generation gap. And it was legit, no question about it. You know, there are kids who came back and their parents, you sat out for three days, and, you know, just as long as you were there. And then when they talked to people who it's just as long as you were okay. But my favorite story, or one of my favorites, is as uh, a woman, uh, Liza Lucy, who is from Honesdale, Pennsylvania, which is just across the border from New York State. So her trip to Bethel was not that far. And her mom actually knew Max Yasger, whose farm, uh, that was, he was the, the host, so to speak. And so she told me that her mom, she was 16 years old, her mom gave her a ride to and from Woodstock Friday and Saturday and went back home and then picked her up at like midnight and did the same thing on Saturday. I said, do you realize like what, what kind of minority that puts you in <laughs> that you had a ride to and from Woodstock from your mother on Friday and Saturday? And she said, yeah, that was my mother. So one of my favorite stories or observations from the interviews I did for this uh, radio special that we've done for CBS News is with Jay Kernis, who is a producer here at CBS Sunday Morning. And he said he's from a small town in North Jersey and he goes with older friends who were his camp counselors who were in college. And so his parents said, okay, you're going with older kids who we know, go ahead. And he, he shows up and he stays for the weekend. He actually connects with another group who bring him back home at the end of the weekend, door to door, right to New Jersey, his home in New Jersey. And his observation early on and through the years was, uh, and his parents were fine with him to go. There was no real battle as far as that was concerned, but that he had, Grown up, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, you, you went to school, you went to college, you got a job, you built a life, a home and a family, and and then he goes to Woodstock, and he's not necessarily shunning that way of life or, or thinking that was a sellout or something like that, but basically he saw at Woodstock that th- there was another life out there. There was another kind of America out there, and that all kind of came to him in bits and pieces throughout that weekend, certainly in the aftermath of that weekend, and certainly in the years after when he thinks more and more about the bigger picture and Woodstock. And I thought that was one of the more thoughtful takes on the meaning, quote-unquote, of Woodstock. Finally, a lot of people apparently remember seeing the film about Woodstock, even if they weren't there. How exactly did that come about, and how did it help build the legend of the concert? Here's that part. Another issue with Woodstock I found was sometimes people would mix up their own memories with seeing the film. 
Oh. And sometimes they had people, you know, like, oh, I was there and I saw so-and-so. So, but you said you were there only Saturday. That person played on Friday. No, I saw some. I'm, I'm not saying that makes them a bad person. I'm saying that's the notion of memory. In fact, I, years ago, I did a profile on the writer Paul Oster, uh, this great novelist. And I think it was him who said to me, like, the notion of storytelling, when we tell a story from the past, when we tell a story, we're not telling the story of what happened. We're telling a story of the last time we told the story which is a pretty eloquent way of saying it. But also, uh, something I forgot to throw in, that when Hendrix, and you can see it in the film, when Hendrix plays, there's no 500,000 there anymore. So that notion of people, geez, um, you know, it's raining, let's just get out. You know, let's get out while the getting's good. Right. Or we gotta, I gotta go. Gotta go back I gotta work. go back, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, we're not alone. Now, there were still, as estimates are about like 50,000 people there for Hendrix and you know those who were there you know will tell you I saw him you know that kind of thing but it was not you know people had places to be so there are some more outtakes from that great conversation I hope you've enjoyed it if you haven't listened to part one I urge you to do so if you did listen to part one well hope you enjoyed this and you didn't have to wait around for three days in the mud and the rain to hear it so I am Anthony Salvanto for Where Did You Get This Number? We will be back next week, back to current politics. We'll be talking about the 2020 campaign and some of the issues coming up there. In the meantime, as always, let me thank my producer, Alan Pang, for pulling all of this together. Let me thank Bud Mishkin and Lenny Steinhorn once again. And thank you for listening. I'll see you back here next week. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.